Let's turn together now. We'll be reading from 2 Kings chapter 14. We'll read the whole chapter of 2 Kings chapter 14. As we continue in our search for the king, the son of David. Before we read, let's pray together. All do we know that your word gives life. And as we, apart from your coming in our lifetime, are destined for the grave, we know that the word and the message which is given in your gospel speaks of new life and resurrection through Christ the King. Focus our hearts upon him and help us to examine ourselves in light of this passage to ensure that we belong to him and that we honor him in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Kings chapter 14, starting in the first verse. In the second year of Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Jehoadin, she was from Jerusalem. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father David had done. In everything he followed the example of his father Joash. The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. After the kingdom was firmly in his grasp, he executed the officials who had murdered his father, the king. And he did not put the sons of the assassins to death in accordance with what is written in the book of the law of Moses, where the Lord commanded fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their fathers. Each is to die for his own sins. He was the one who defeated 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt and captured Selah in battle, calling it Jokthiel, the name it has to this day. Then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel, with the challenge, Come meet me face to face. But Jehoash, king of Israel, replied to Amaziah, king of Judah, A thistle in Lebanon sent a message to a cedar in Lebanon, Give your daughter to my son in marriage. Then a wild beast in Lebanon came along and trampled the thistle underfoot. You have indeed defeated Edom, and now you are arrogant. Glory in your victory, but stay at home. Why ask for trouble and cause your own downfall and that of Judah also? Amaziah, however, would not listen. So Jehoash, king of Israel, attacked. He and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced each other at Beth Shemesh in Judah. Judah was routed by Israel, and every man fled to his home. Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh. Then Jehoash went to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the Ephraim gate to the corner gate, a section about 600 feet long. He took all the gold and silver and all the articles found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace. He also took hostages and returned to Samaria. As for the other events of the reign of Jehoash, what he did and his achievements, including his war against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Jehoash rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. And Jeroboam, his son, succeeded him as king. Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, lived for 15 years after the death of Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel. As for the other events of Amaziah's reign, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? They conspired against him in Jerusalem, 
And he fled to Lachish, but they sent men after him to Lachish and killed him there. He was brought back by horse and was buried in Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. Then all the people of Judah took Azariah, who was 16 years old, and made him king in place of his father Amaziah. He was the one who rebuilt Elath and restored it to Judah after Amaziah rested with his fathers. In the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria, and he reigned 41 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Sea of the Arabah in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. The Lord had seen how bitterly everyone in Israel, whether slave or free, was suffering. There was no one to help them. And since the Lord had not said he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash. As for the other events of Jeroboam's reign, all he did in his military achievements, including how he recovered for Israel, both Damascus and Hamath, which had belonged to Yaudi, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Jeroboam rested with his fathers, the kings of Israel, and Zechariah, his son, succeeded him as king. Now, perhaps you've heard of the book or maybe even read the book, uh, A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. Well, here in, in the passage before us, we have uh, A Tale of Two Kings. We might say, really, it's, it's two and a half kings because we look at the reigns of Amaziah, king of Judah in the south, and the reign of Jeroboam II, who's of no relation to Jeroboam I, but took his name as a throne name in the northern kingdom of Israel. And that half-king is that we also engage a little bit with Jehoash, king of Israel, but really only as he interacts in battle with Amaziah, king of Judah. And so Amaziah is the first king that we deal with, and Amaziah on the surface appears to be a pretty decent king. He reigns a pretty long time, 20 years, 29 years. His mother is from Jerusalem, so he's of good Jewish stock. And the author says that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So far, so good. But there's a bit of a caveat, right? If we stopped there, we might be tempted to say, well, yeah, look, this, this Amaziah is a good king. But the author of 2 Kings goes on, the author of Kings goes on, and he says he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father David had done. The high places, however, were not removed. It's easy to miss this kind of thing because we, we read this refrain over and over and over, king after king after king after king. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father David had done. It, it's kind of like the introductory mu music to a TV show. If you have a, a favorite TV show, and when it begins to come on, there's the introductory song, and they roll some of the credits, and really you stop listening to the song. It just becomes something that tells you that the new episode is coming. And th this feels like that. This is just almost like the introductory song that tells us a new king is coming, and so we can become numb to it and miss Miss the point that's being made. But in, these, but in these words and in these introductions, we learn a lot about these kings. It, it appears as though Amaziah is a good king, but he's not really a good king. 
He does what is right in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father David had done. Amaziah is better than some. We might even say that Amaziah is better than most. He's, he's an above-average king. He's, he does better than what most of the kings of, of Israel had done, and certainly better than most of the kings of Israel, and even some of the kings of Judah. He, he's above average. He's better than some. But is that the standard that we shoot for? Do we shoot for above average? Do we shoot for better than some? Or more importantly, is that the standard that God sets for us? Does God accept and does He expect better than some? Right? As long as you're in the top half, you get a passing grade from God. That, that's not how God works. This is, this is the God that we read of that we read of last week from Isaiah 6 when Pastor John preached. This is the God who is holy, holy, holy. He's not just holy. He's not just more holy. He's most holy. This is the God who hung the stars in the sky and taught the birds how to sing that tells the oceans you can only go this far. This is the God whom the angels stand before all the time for all eternity singing of Him and how glorious He is. And this great glorious God is worthy of more than better than average. And that's all that Amaziah has to offer. Better than average. God does not require partial obedience. He does not require half-hearted obedience. But God is worthy of wholehearted, fully devoted love. A life lived entirely in the light of God and in the fear of the Lord. That's what God is worthy of, and that's what God expects. And this is not something that we conjure up on our own or is only an Old Testament concept, but we can consider the story of the rich young ruler. I mentioned the rich young ruler in my sermon last week in Kuwait because the rich young ruler is required to give up everything he has to follow Jesus. And if you are going to leave behind Islam to follow Jesus in the Middle East, you will give up everything you have. And in fact, I, I had a good time to engage with some of the Christian population in Kuwait, and, and they were informing me that if you are a Christian, that's okay. You, you have to go through a few extra government hoops. But if you are Islamic and you leave Islam for Christianity, you can be put to death by anybody without consequence. And so anybody who converts leaves for Lebanon or the UK or for the United States to find rescue for their lives. Certainly the rich young ruler has something to say. And the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus says to him, You know the commandments. What a frightening thing to hear. You know the commandments, right? This, this should have sent the man into a, a tizzy of despair. He should have said again with Isaiah, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. But instead, he says, All these I have kept from my youth. He's a liar, and he's self-deceived. And Jesus knows that, but instead of Jesus going back through the time of his life and telling him everywhere that he, had, that he had missed the boat, Jesus shows him where he is still off track. Jesus says to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. He says, put your money where your mouth is, son. 
Do you really love God more than you love anything else? Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, or do you love your money more? What did the man do? He went away sad because he had great wealth. He kept his wealth and he lost his soul. Was it worth it? I certainly don't think it's worth it now. And that rich young ruler and Amaziah stand as warnings to us even in the 21st century now. And it's not just the self-proclaimed antagonistic atheist who will face condemnation from God if he doesn't repent. But it's the self-proclaimed God-worshipper who does not actually love God who will share in his condemnation as well. So here's Amaziah. The half-hearted kind of good, better than some king. But Amaziah has some high points. You go to verse 6 and we see that he has obedience to the Lord, at least to some degree. He, he comes to the throne because his father had been put to death, because his father ended up being a miserable king at the end of his life. People didn't like him, so they put him to death. And so he comes to the throne. And as you would expect, he decides, I don't want these assassins out there. They might kill me next. So he has the assassins put to death. But he doesn't have their children put to death. You may say, well, that makes sense. But in the ancient world, they would have their whole families put to death in almost every other context. Other nations would have been surprised that the families of assassins were allowed to live. But why doesn't he do it? Because the word of the Lord given in Deuteronomy says you cannot kill the son for the father's sin. So we see obedience, and then we see as we bump down to verse 7 that he has victory. He goes out to fight with Edom, Edom the historic enemy of Judah, Edom that country which had really pestered Judah for some time and taken advantage of their weakness. He goes out and he has a battle against Edom and he wins the battle. He takes over some territory that Edom had controlled and just like King David, he dominates Edom during his reign. And it would seem as though Amaziah has Judah on the up. But things are not always as they appear. Because here we see that this is the high point, and it's all downhill from there. And it's all downhill from there as we move into verses 8 to 22 for kind of the heart of the passage. It's all downhill from there because Amaziah gets puffed up. He gets a big head. As uh, my grandma used to say, he was too big for his britches. And so he decides he's going to go off and he's going to challenge a different king. And he goes off and he says to, he says to, Jer he says to Jehoash, come meet me face to face and let's have battle. You might say that, that Amaziah is sort of like a minor league baseball team, like the White Sox. <laughs> Just kidding. And he just, he just beat the pants off. You, you see that he, it's like a, a minor league baseball team went and scrimmaged against the college baseball team and beat the pants off them. And the minor league baseball team gets all excited and says, we can take anybody. We are good. We are great. We, we should all be in the majors. We're going to go challenge one of the major league teams. And they go and challenge one of the major league teams, and they get destroyed. That's how it goes for Amaziah. He beats the smaller, poorer Edom, whom he should beat, and he gets a big head, and he decides, I'm going to go play ball with the big boys. 
And so he goes off and he challenges Israel, which was much larger and much stronger at this point in time. And King Jehoash says, you don't want any of this. Stay home. Enjoy the spoils of war. Enjoy your victory. Revel in your glory. Expand your kingdom. But don't come up here looking for a fight. But Amaziah can't help himself. He wants glory. He wants treasure. He wants power. He wants war. So he gets war. And just like a minor league team would get wiped by a major league team, so too he gets wiped by Jehoash and Israel. Jehoash comes down and he beats down the walls of Jerusalem. He plunders all the money out of the palace and out of the temple. The temple is looted again. And he takes hostages. And this wouldn't have been just Joe and Jane Judahite that get hauled off into, into exile, but, but Jehoash would have taken the brightest and the best that Judah had to offer. All the king's advisors, all the most wealthy, most successful people, and he would have taken all these people so that there was no intellectual ability and no wealth left in Judah ever to challenge him and make a mistake like this again. But not only that, but he captures Amaziah too. He captures Amaziah the king. And almost certainly, he brings him back to Samaria as a hostage as well. And this comes more clear to us if we jump down to verse 17. In verse 17, we read, Amaziah, son of Joash, king of Judah, lived for 15 years after the death of Jehoash. But it doesn't say that he reigned for 15 years. He lived, but he was never king in the same way again. Even when he was returned to Jerusalem, it was his son who sat on his throne. He was king in name only. And all of these things foreshadow what will come in just ten chapters, what will come in Judah. When the Babylonians come, they destroy the walls of Jerusalem They burn down the temple. They take all the people and all the money and the king and they haul them off into exile. We might say Amaziah is the first birth pains of the destruction that awaits God's people. How the mighty have fallen. You had Amaziah who seemed to be doing so well, who won victories and didn't put to death the the assassins. But now, his pride and his idolatry, idolatry recorded in 2 Chronicles, he actually takes Edom's defeated gods and begins worshiping them himself. What a fool. His pride and his idolatry lead to his destruction. And like his father before him, there are people who just can't stand to have him as their king for one more day. And so they put him to death. Another murdered king of Judah, and they make his son king instead. All seemed so well. It appeared so well. But things are not often as they appear. And that's the case here. His pride led to his destruction. So that's the, that's the first king. Now we move into the second king, King Jeroboam II, who, who appears to be different in all kinds of ways. Amaziah was a crumbling, failing king. 
But Jeroboam was a great king. Jeroboam was a, a powerful king. And Jeroboam is the king that we finish with in the passage, starting in verse 23 and going through to the end. Amaziah crumbles, but Jeroboam is a raging success of a king. Everywhere he goes, he has victory. Now, now there are phrases or there are names that don't mean a whole lot to us. Things like Lebohamoth or the Sea of Araba. And we don't know what these places are. We don't have a, a, a mental map in our minds. But these, these markers, these geographic markers, are, are the Israelite equivalent of saying from sea to shining sea. We consider from the ocean in the east to the ocean in the west to be America. And this belongs to America. This is American soil. Well, from Lebohamoth to the Sea of Araba is sea to shining sea for the Israelites. This is Israelite territory. The problem being that the Israelites didn't control this territory any longer. But when Jeroboam becomes king, they take it all back. And they take back more. As you go into verse 17, you would see, or rather, as you go down the, the passage towards the end of the passage, not verse 17, but into verse 25, you, you see that he takes even Damascus, even the capital. The, this is the capital of Syria. The Syrians had been pestering Israel for generations. They've been taking their territory and fighting wars against them. But now Jeroboam marches right to the heart of Syria and captures the capital. And when he does so, Jeroboam expands Israel's borders to the very places they had been under Solomon. Jeroboam brings Israel back to the glorious days of King Solomon. And Israel becomes extremely wealthy. Archaeological studies have shown that under the time of Jeroboam, Israel was filthy rich. They had all kinds of imports of oils and wines and spices brought from a long ways away. In fact, the prophet Amos says there's so much food in the land of Israel during the time of Jeroboam that he describes some of the women as cows. It wouldn't go over so very well in today's day, but so great was the luxury, so great was their ability to eat and eat and eat without any reservation because of the wealth that Jeroboam brought in to the nation. So Jeroboam is successful in battle. He brings security and wealth to Israel. What a great king, right? No. God doesn't give us that option. You go back to right when we begin with Jeroboam, and it says, Jeroboam did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam's son of Nebat. Jeroboam appears to be a great king, but things are not always as they appear. But why? Why would God give Jeroboam, this nasty, idolatrous king, why would he give Jeroboam victory? That's a good question. The psalmist experiences this as well in Psalm 72 the psalmist looks around and he sees all these wicked people prospering. He becomes jealous. He says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Why? Why do the wicked prosper? Why do those who are sinful and seem to have no claim on God's goodness, why do they seem sometimes to do so well? 
why does Jeroboam do well? That's a good question to ask, and it's a question, thankfully, that the Spirit-inspired author answers in verse 25. We read there that all these victories were in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. Now, a short little note, I, I love verses like this because I really enjoy to see the Bible come together First, Gath-Hefer is a town just a little north of Nazareth where Jesus grew up. And I like that kind of thing because I like that you can take the geography of kings and just overlay it over Jesus' life and see that Jesus walks in this ancient territory where Jonah was. But then also, Jonah. Jonah, son of Amittai. We know the story of Jonah, right? We know that, we know that Jonah was the prophet and he was sent to Nineveh in the Assyrians to preach repentance and he didn't want to go, so he hops a boat the opposite direction to the west across the Mediterranean Sea to go off to Tarshish, to Spain, because he wants nothing to do with God's command. God sends the storm. God sends the fish. Jonah gets swathered. He gets spit back up. He goes to Nineveh and the, and the Assyrians repent. We know the story of Jonah. But all that comes after this. The first thing that Jonah is recorded as having done is he is a prophet in Jeroboam's day in Israel and he preaches that Jeroboam is going to have success. We've seen this before, haven't we? Because Elisha was a prophet during Jehoash's day, Jeroboam's father. And Jehoash had been a nasty, rotten, no-good king too. But Elisha had promised him that he was going to have victory. But this gets us to a very important point. Why does Jeroboam win victories? It's not because Jeroboam is a great king. It's because the Lord is a great God. And he has mercy on his people. He had not decided, as the author says, he had not decided to blot out Israel, at least not yet. And so he gives them relief. And he gives them relief through the hand of Jeroboam. But it is not... Jeroboam, who wins the battle. It is the Lord who wins the battle. And it's not Jeroboam who merits the victory. God gives them victories because he loves them, because he had promised to love them to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. But again, why? Why would God do this? Why would he allow Jeroboam to use a phrase popular in our own political culture? Why would, he, why would he allow Jeroboam to make Israel great again? Of all the people he could have used, why him? Because God decides what he will do and with whom he will do it. And he chose to use Jeroboam, wicked as he was, to do good things for his people. So Jeroboam appears to be a good king, but things are often not as they appear. In fact, the prophets Amos and Hosea, they, they prophesy during the time of Jeroboam, and they both blast Jeroboam's Israel. Amos blasts Jeroboam and Israel for greed and idolatry and oppression. Hosea compares Jeroboam's Israel to a prostitute wife. It's very plain during the time of Jeroboam that God is not pleased even as the people were singing his praises. And all the while, Israel built up wealth and power. And even as God was blessing them, they turned to idols. You know, archaeological studies prove that Israel was wealthy 
But also, if you go back and you study the archaeology of the day, you see that the Lord's name begins to be mentioned far less, and Baal's name begins to be mentioned far more. The Baals come back into these false gods, come back into Israel, even as God is blessing her so richly. One scholar says that it, it was this time of peace and prosperity that Israel used instead of blessing God, used to wind the rope with which she would hang herself. Jeroboam, Jeroboam and his Israel would soon be dead. And they would never come back. You know, both these kings, as different as they are, both these kings teach a, a very similar lesson, and that is, again, that things are not always as they appear. Amaziah appeared godly and successful, but in the end, he was proud and idolatrous. Jeroboam appeared to be a raging success of a king, but in the end, he was just setting the stage for the destruction of his nation. The rich young ruler, for that matter, seemed to be a pious and godly and blessed man, but in reality, he didn't love God. He loved himself more than he loved God. Perhaps it would be wise to look at ourselves and to see if things are as they appear for us. Whether we are who we appear to be. Now, I don't want you to look at somebody else and begin asking, are they really who they say they are? We owe it to our Christian brothers and sisters to take them at their word that they are who they say they are. We owe it to them to give them the benefit of the doubt and not to judge them in a way that we would investigate their hearts without simply taking them at their word. But we owe it to ourselves to make sure that we are not merely 21st century versions of Amaziah and Jeroboam and the rich young ruler. We owe it to ourselves to see whether the God that we say we love is actually whom we love. To make sure that we are not fools. Jesus tells a parable about that, which we'll refer to in just a moment. But there are many people who appear to be godly who are not. And there will be many people who will very much expect to be welcomed by Jesus on the day of his return and who will not be. Jesus says that in Matthew 7. He says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons. And in your name perform miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. The day would be too late for them. The day was coming when it would be too late for Israel as well. The prophet Amos in Amos 5.6 said, Seek the Lord and live. There's still chance. Seek the Lord and live or... He will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire, and it will devour them. Seek the Lord and live, or. That or is a terrifying word. And we never know when the or will come for us. It may come for us like a thief in the night, as it did for Israel. Israel gained wealth and power, and very quickly, an enemy would come and destroy her. The ore 
may come for us, where we are suddenly, without expectation, swept into the presence of God. At that moment, we will see whether we are as we appear to be, and whether we love God as we say that we love Him. Perhaps for all of the external success and signs of devotion, we, like Amaziah and the rich young ruler, are frauds. And it would be good to decide that and to recognize that now and then. Jesus tells a parable, as I mentioned a few moments ago, from Luke 12. It says, And he told them this parable, The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. They said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. What do we really love? The rich young ruler loved his wealth. Are we not tempted to the same thing, living in the most wealthy country the world has ever seen? He loved his wealth and not God's Son. And it's easy with the benefit of hindsight to see that he was a fool for it. But it's much more difficult to see it in our own time, in our own hearts. And Amaziah was a fool. Jeroboam was a fool, the rich young ruler was a fool, and the man in Jesus' parable was a fool. The question we should ask ourselves out of a passage like 2 Kings 14 is whether we are fools. Or may it be, whether we love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. Whether we love him with the wholehearted, single-minded devotion that he is worthy of. And whether it is that we truly trust Christ to fill in everywhere that we lack. These men loved themselves more than God. But Jesus calls those who would follow him to take up their cross to follow him. To die in order to live. It takes faith to bear a cross to follow a crucified man. It takes love to carry a cross to follow a crucified man. And may these men be warnings of the foolishness of not doing that. May the apostles, Paul, and many saints who've gone before us be examples of the glory of giving up everything else to have Christ, our God and our King. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes we come to your word. We see passages that give us 
all kinds of joy and happiness and relief. We come to stories like the birth of Jesus and the angels singing or the resurrection. We, we come to these glorious moments and we are filled with joy. And other times we come to passages like those in the prophets and like this from 2 Kings 14 and we rightly tremble. Because we see men who seem to start well and seem to be doing so well and yet who fell so far short in your eyes. Well, we do not want to be like these men. We want to be those who take up the cross to follow Christ. Who would give away everything if that's what it meant to have treasure in heaven and to follow Jesus. It's so easy to see the foolishness of those who've gone before but give us eyes to see our own foolishness, our own covetousness and greed, and then free us from it. Free us from everything that would hold us back. And give us a heart that loves you, and we give up anything to follow Christ. And Lord, we know that it is always worth it. Because what you give is far greater, far, far greater than what we could ever give away. So we pray for wisdom. We pray for hearts that would love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.